everybody. Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're doing a first, a part two of a two-part series with Dr. Mark McConville. His book, Failure to Launch, Why Your 20-Something Hasn't Grown Up and What to Do About It, is about why today's young adults are struggling to grow up and create fully independent lives. Last episode, we talked to Dr. McConville about preparing your tweens and teens to be able to launch. And today, we're talking to him about what happens when they fail to do so. But before we talk to him, we're going to talk about why we personally need this information. Hmm. Dr. McConville will be giving advice to you and to us. We need it. So, Steph, I've been thinking a lot about this. I, when I read his book, I was thinking a lot about it. And then um, as we spoke with him, I was thinking how surprisingly the preparation is easier in my mind than the remedy. So like mm. the things in high school to do, those are doable. Getting your kid to make a phone call to a doctor, all those things. But like if it's not working, you know, I, I have this like kind of feeling like if it's not working, I'm never letting a kid go homeless. They have a, a room in my house. But what does that look like? Like, what would we, first of all, in my family, it would be so bad for my kids' mental health. We got to experience that during COVID. <laughs> right. No one wants to do that again. Um, so number one, we would do whatever it took to make that not happen. But mm -hmm. there's also this kind of like, you shouldn't let your kid move back in. But I, I'm not leaving them homeless. Mm -hmm. Like, what? What's the alternative? So- it's it's kind of a struggle. To me, it reminds me of Wendy Mogul's blessings of a B minus and a skin knee. Yeah. It's not failure that we're saying we're gonna go for, <laughs> right? It's like it's somewhere in between like our dream of independence and then our reality. And in the in the middle of those two things is not homelessness. Yes. Yes. Um the word I keep thinking about is reset. That was the word I I I jotted down because I was thinking it's not like you and I have talked about this a million times. So I have had the privilege of having two adults living at home. And it did work. We didn't, we didn't charge rent and we didn't put an expiry on it. Um, I don't know if that was right or wrong, but, um, it did. Yeah, but it, it worked, right? It did. And it definitely worked. I mean, we, you know, lots of, uh, you know, just kind of what you do around here, which is for the most part, I feel like all we do is clean up the kitchen, <laughs> walk a dog, dishwasher, um, yeah. yeah. So the regular, the regular routine of life yeah. went on and, and they just participated like adults, which is kind of unbelievable, right? Like it, yeah. it, it must feel good to you that you're not falling into this other story that we're hearing so much about. For sure. One of the other things I was, I was thinking about is like when my kids went to college, like you get maybe a few calls a day for like a week <laughs> and then you get like a call a day for a while. And, you know, I have five kids. I get to experience things many times and to see that there are patterns. And I, I knew at like for sure by four and five, I knew they were settled when they stopped calling me, when it was like we had our regular scheduled phone call and it wasn't like a daily kind of, hi, I'm walking from class to class and I have no one to talk to on the way to class. So I'm going to call you and fill the time. So I look like I've got something to do with a a phone to my ear, you know, like that disappeared. And it was such a relief. Like, I, I feel like I went from 
the panic of the everyday call. Is this okay? Is Are they doing okay? Is this a sign of something horrible? To like, just hold your breath for a little bit, hold your breath yeah. and give it a little time. And then, and then to exhale it, right? Breathing and, 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 and in and out and feeling okay. Yes. That worked in our household, but I don't want anyone to think I wasn't holding my breath a lot, like any other stage of parenting. I think like that should, that would just be false <laughs> to assume that like, just cause something's working. I guess I, I always have that feeling. I have that feeling in all of parenting, like waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's funny. I say that not not so much because I'm like thinking 305 is going to the world is going to crash, but because I've had too many experiences when I said they're good and then I got a phone call and they weren't good. So I just want to protect the the public truth of like, you know, what? for the moment they seem good. But as we all know, life changes on a dime. And so totally. at the moment, they're fine. That's my line. At the moment, they're fine. More likely, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe mine's a combination of those, Sue. Todd and I were walking around the block, and one of our kids had been really unsettled. And I I, I looked at Todd, and I said, oh, my God, it's so great. Like, can you believe it? Like, everybody's just, like, in a really good spot right now. <laughs> Get home, and one of them calls, and they've just had a breakup. I'm like, can I just make it around the block? Like, was that, that nine minutes around the block? Like, that was clearly too much to ask for, you know? So but maybe it is, it's that. just life. It's, it's life. just life. Like crap happens. It doesn't matter how you're living your life. It's going to happen. Okay. Here's my next question for okay. you. Um, like I think financial independence is such an interesting concept because like one of my kids, when they graduated college and we were visiting said, like, do I pay for the coffee, mm. my own coffee? And I just thought that was so naively sweet, like adorable, like, you know, we're going to buy your coffee. But then, you know, where is that line? Like we say our kids are launched and financially independent, but they're still on our family plan for the phone. What is financially independence? I think that is a great question. And to try and compare that to our generation growing up, well, first of all, obviously there were no phones, but I'm saying like pick something. I don't even know what that would be, but it's like, we just had a conversation here the other night about auto insurance. And I'm like, okay, well now like one's off on their own. The second one's about to go. And I'm like, I I don't want to pay their auto insurance anymore. I'm like, if they try and do that themselves, like it's going to be crazy expensive. I'm like, wait, are we changing the titles of the, I was like, oh my God, my head is going to explode. And it's like what you said. I'm like, okay, well maybe they were, and I haven't been in this space before. Right. It's like everything with parenting. Do you remember switching? This is such a funny reference. It's so long ago. Switching to baby food from either breast or, or formula. And it's like, whenever you do that new thing, you're like, oh my God, how am I ever going to get this down? Like, this is totally new. I feel like that just keeps happening. So this one is, I'm like, okay, well, wait, maybe we leave them on our insurance and they just reimburse us because that's more, that's a better plan. We don't have to switch the cars over and okay, go shop the insurance. That's what I was thinking. Go shop it. And if you get a better rate, you can come off. If you don't get a better rate, I'm okay being the pass through for now. Is that stupid? I have no idea. I mean, I think every family makes their own decision. But (laughs) the funny thing in in my house, we were having a conversation about the family plan. Okay. And so- The phone plan. The phone plan, right? The phone plan, right? Yeah. So for some of the kids, they are, you know, old and independent financially, and they're still on our phone plan. Yeah. And they're like- well, we'll we'll do our own plan. I mean, they really don't care. They are happy mm-hmm. to take themselves off of our phone plan. And I look over at Dan and he's tearing up 
And it's like he wants them on the family plan. <laughs> he needs them on the family plan. And so the other part of the story of like, hey, are they financially independent? He's just joking. He's just thinking he's being funny. But he wants them. Like oh. to him, that's his family. And if he has a fa- anything called a family plan, it requires all family members. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll see that and give you my spouse would be the exact same way. We'll, in fact, just the other day, as the one was getting ready to leave, he said, oh, kind of sad. And I said, you know, he's been here 15 months, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, we're... We're both so bad at those transitions in our house. It's not good at all. Like you, you yeah. have one and one. We, we yes, have two. It's true. It's not good. It is true. It is true. All right. Up next is our conversation with Dr. Mark McConville. We can't wait for you to join us. Hi, this is Kim Thompson, host of Storytime Anytime, a podcast packed with songs, stories, and a whole lot of learning fun. Each episode will explore a new topic like dinosaurs, sharks, space travel, chemistry, horses, reptiles, and so much more. New episodes are out every other week, so check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. It's really story time and music at its best, exclusively for kids. today is Dr. Mark McConville, a clinical psychologist specializing in adult, adolescent, emerging adult, and family psychology. His latest book entitled Failure to Launch investigates the root causes of why modern kids are struggling to transition from childhood to adulthood. Mark, thanks so much for being here with us again. You're our first time doing a two-part series, but we had so much to talk about, and it was clear for our audience that we could divide this into like when they're legitimately under your roof because they are still in middle school and high school. And then when we kind of want them to be not in our house, but maybe circumstances brought them back to our house. And maybe we even a little bit like having them in our house. So, you know, there's this kind of talk about the, you know, your kid coming back into your basement. Is that still the narrative? Like, is it just that they've come home and they're part of your family for longer than it used to be? Well, that is certainly the case. I mean, that's, uh, demonstrated just in terms of the economics of independent living. Um, so to be, say, 20, 21, 22, or 3, and to be able to afford independent housing is a very different um, economic matter than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So often mom and dad's, you know, your old bedroom is sometimes the only really affordable place. Well, that's that's part of it. The other thing, and you kind of alluded to it, some parents welcome their kids coming home. It's lovely to have them around. 
Some parents are drumming their fingers, waiting for them to pack their bags and move out. And so much of it, uh, in my experience, seems to depend on, is this kid doing the work of growing up, of moving toward eventual independent living? A, a perfect example is being in school. You know, if you have a child at home who is taking a full course load, is diligently attending to their studies, but their dorm room happens to be in your basement, as long as you're comfortable having them there, I see that as wholly appropriate because the, the housing you're giving them is in full support of a kind of growth process. Now, that's very different from if your your kid has dropped those classes, is spending the better time of the day playing video games and sleeping in until 2 o'clock. Then, then you look at that housing arrangement in a very different way, not as helpful, but maybe even as part of the problem. Wow, that is so well said. So what if you've got an out-of-control situation? And maybe it's exactly what you described, right? Maybe, maybe it's this kid has dropped out, they're gaming, who knows, right? But we'll call it an out-of-control uh, situation with a 20-something-year-old. They're not on the right trajectory, what you think is the right trajectory. What's the most effective way to turn that around? What does that look like? Well, first of all, the, the scenario you described has a number of different profiles. You know, one of, one of them is the perpetual 15-year-old, meaning um, even though that child is in their 20s, they are a really poor citizen of the household. They're disrespectful. They pay no uh, honor to very reasonable house rules, you know, put your dishes in the sink, that sort of thing, help out a little bit. So there are, when that profile comes into my office, it's a different matter. Because I think the parents are essentially in a situation where they are enduring a variation of abuse. With a 15-year-old, we call it parenting. <laughs> but with a 23-year-old, we call it abuse. Right? I mean, it is a very important distinction. And, and I'm, so I have a much more kind of draw the line and be intolerant kind of mentality for the parent of a 20-something who is abusive. Now, the more common profile that I encounter is quite different from that. It's not so active, it's more passive. He or she isn't abusive, they're just not doing much of anything that's constructive. And they may be doing a lot of things that are passively destructive, like sleeping well past noon, uh, staying up incredibly late, maybe drinking too much or using too much weed, just not engaged in any kind of activity that you could point to and say, that activity is helping them to grow up. So I think your question is, well, what can parents do? And it's very interesting. To me, the, the first, I'll call it the stage of my involvement with those parents is getting them to establish a kind of arm's length perspective on their relationship with that child, which they don't typically have. They're too immersed in that relationship. And what I want them to be able to see clearly is what of their intended support has actually rolled over and become enabling. It's actually part of the problem. So if just to take a very common profile, let's say my 22, three, four year old is sleeping till two in the afternoon, playing video games or something, I may not even be sure, but they're on the 
internet for hours and hours and hours. Uh, they, they may or may not be engaged with their friends. Um, at the family dinner table, whenever they arrive, they're on their phone much of the time. It's a pretty deadly situation. But my first question is, how am I part of that? Who's paying for that phone? Chances are it's me. Who's paying for that Wi-Fi? Chances are it's me. Who's putting that roof over their head? Well, pretty darn certain that that's me. So getting the parent to see how so many of the things that are well-intended traditions of support have actually become part of the problem. And then the real work begins, which is looking at how do we begin to turn that around? How do we begin to take some of that enabling and, and withdrawing that from the equation? I'm going to ask a follow-up on that one, because for some of us, we've parented for so long, and we may even still have a, kids in the house who require that parenting. And then there's this other thing going on here where those kids who come back, they do not want you to parent that way. And maybe it's not even appropriate. I don't know what it looks like to still be the parent in a house where there's a kid who maybe is too old to be or for a series of circumstances ends up back in the house. Where Where's that fine line of like, I'm, I'm not parenting that kid, but I'm also setting serious rules in the house because it is our house. Well, so much of that is driven by the kid. What most parents do, it, the kid maybe come maybe has been gone and comes back, and the parents will casually set loose house rules. They'll say, "Oh, just remember, we like clear the table after dinner, put your dishes in the sink." You know, they'll they'll just they'll spell out some things that are very rudimentary, and the kid who is well on his or her way to growing up has, you know, they just they they comply with those rules the same way they would if, for example, they were coming and spending a month at my home. And I said to them, oh, by the way, here's how we do things here. There wouldn't be any arguing. There wouldn't be any disciplining or any consequencing. They would sort of honor that, that it's my home and I'm entitled to set those stipulations. It's, it's different when you have a years-long relationship where your child has learned, as children do, to take you for granted and to take your support for granted. Um, and it's not by, not because they're bad people. It's because it's always been there. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> well, the first thing is to become aware of it, right? Because it tends to be just, well, we've always done things this way. Parents will often express some minor outrage. I can't believe she takes things so much for granted. And I have this sort of quirky trick question that I put to parents when they say that. I will say to them, when's the last time you stopped to appreciate our wonderful interstate highway system here in the United States? And they look at me like I'm nuts. Like, what? What's that have to do with anything? I said, no. When did you last appreciate it? Well, unless they were just on a backtracking, backpacking trip in Peru, they, they haven't given it a moment's thought other than to complain about the orange cones in the summer. Well, that's how your kids look at your support. It's, it's always there, right? And they, they notice when it develops mild imperfections. But other than that, it's just the way life is. So, yeah, parents, it's hard. The parents have to think about 
this relationship. I, I use the term paradigm, which I borrowed from my scientific training. It means a whole frame of reference for understanding something. And I think the parent-child relationship, the paradigm that we're used to by the time they hit 18, is the paradigm of a parent and an adolescent. And a paradigm means there are some unspoken, but just taken for granted, ground rules. You know, for example, let's imagine that you have the misfortune of having the 17-year-old from hell. He skips school. He steals um, your Great Lakes beer from the basement refrigerator. He sneaks his girlfriend into the house up to the bedroom whenever you're not, you're not looking. He occasionally borrows the family car, right? So you, you are, you know, God bless you. We're all going to say prayers for you. But the fact of the matter is you're stuck with this kid. You signed up for it. This is what parenting is. Yes, maybe you could send them away to a wilderness therapy program in Montana. But for the most part, you are bound to do your best to turn that kid around and teach him or her the basic lessons of, of functioning. That's the paradigm of adolescence. You, you are stuck with them, and they're stuck with you, and they know it, and you know it, right? What most of us do is we carry that paradigm into the 20s. It never occurs to us that this relationship has actually become voluntary on both sides. It, that child could get up and walk away any day she chooses, right? And you could, if you chose, say, you know what? Time for you to leave. We're not doing this anymore. And families do that. Um, not, I will say, most of the families that I end up working with, but, but a lot of families still do that. But that's a whole different paradigm. That's a paradigm that says, you are here in my home as an adult, right? I'll give you, um, this is how I learned this, this um, phenomenon. The year after my daughter went to college, and I think my wife and I were both a little bit brokenhearted, we were now empty nesters. There's a private school in Shaker Heights that I, where I consult, and it's a, a girl's school. And they had a student who had left after 10th grade. Uh, she and her mom had moved to another city, and apparently she hated it there. And she wanted to move back and finish her high school at this Shaker Heights school. Um, her grandparents lived in maybe Medina. That so was too long to commute. The school asked me if we would put her up, if we would board her for the year. And I remember thinking, I'm nuts because I'd actually seen this kid in school when she was a ninth grader. And she was not the typical hardworking she was a bit of a hellraiser, a bit of a rule pusher. And I can only think I must have been empty nesting more than I realized. We, we said, okay, you know, it was, my kids were easy to raise. This was easier still. This relationship for eight months was as smooth as could be. And I look back on it and it's because we had an adult to adult relationship. Here, case in point, this was some years ago. She was a cigarette smoker. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? That's not my business. It was odd because she went on to become a professional dancer. But I thought her lungs don't, they're her business. They're not mine. The boundaries of whose business was what were very, very clear. On the other hand, the bedroom where she stayed, that was our business. No cigarette smoking in the house under any circumstances. No cigarette butts in the garden underneath the window. Those kinds of things 
there was no parenting going on. It was just happy to have you here. Here are our ground rules. Anything you need. She had a couple of foods that she hoped we would stock. We were happy to do so. And so that's, of course, when your own 23-year-old comes home to live, it's not a border, right? But that's really the kind of paradigm we're looking for, the paradigm where they look at you and think, I owe you respect because you are giving me this space. I love that example. I think that really, that's something, I mean, I've heard it from other therapists in, in different ways, but I, I love that idea of someone living in your house who isn't your kid and it it's you're not their parents. So thank you. Great example. Yeah. Well, it it, it happened. <laughs> and I I, yeah. I ever would have quite figured it out if it if it hadn't happened. I remember thinking, am I crazy? I'm I yes. what am the I answer thinking? is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you know what it's a good segue to our next question because in that situation, there was this absence for you of of emotion or that emotional tie to that kid. And one of the things you mentioned in your book is about the guilt that all parents feel and that, you know, that it doesn't do anybody any any good to hold on to that guilt. But how do we just say to parents, OK, let go of the guilt and poof, that it's gone? Like, how do you how do you do that? Yeah, it's letting go of guilt as work. Uh, anyone who's spent time in therapy, I certainly did my share of time on the couch, as they say, and learning to minimize the guilt that you inherit from childhood isn't something you do with the snap of the fingers. You it, you work on it. It's a whole reorganizing of your perspective about what's right, what's wrong, what's good, where do I deserve to feel bad about my behavior, where do I not? That's achievable, but it takes time. With parenting, I have yet to meet a thoughtful, caring parent who didn't have some form of guilt about their parenting. I do, right? There are things I did with my kids that I just think, I wish I could go back and undo that. But what happens is we look at the kid and if the kid is doing well, our guilt just recedes to the background. It becomes a footnote in our parenting. But if your kid stumbles and falls out of bed, if your kid fails out of college, if your kid gets into some kind of trouble, then what those same good and thoughtful parents do is now they, they go through the whole litany of maybe I shouldn't have helped them so much with their homework. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. Maybe I should have helped them more with their homework, right? Maybe maybe I should have allowed more independence. No, 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 maybe we should have required them to sit at the family dinner table. It doesn't matter what you did you will find fault in what you did, right? Because you're looking to explain your kid's behavior. Now, my issue when that parent of the 22-year-old comes in my office is you're wasting time because guilt, now, newsflash, folks, guilt is actually a very narcissistic emotion. When I'm guilty about Mark McConville, I'm feeling bad for Mark McConville. I feel bad that I didn't live up to some standard of mine. That involves me and me. Doesn't involve you. Doesn't involve even my kid, right? So it's a very self-involved emotion. And if you're a parent coming into my office saying, yikes, I want to find a way to be helpful to my 22-year-old, my point is your guilt is just draining energy. If there's some useful analysis, maybe you're one of those parents that, I don't know, you you really tried to 
stay on top of your kid and manage their schoolwork right through 12th grade. Well, let's take a look at that. That might not be the best policy for someone that's, you know, claiming to be an adult. So, yeah, we might look at things that you're perpetuating that aren't helpful. But beyond that, it's of no use to beat your chest, right? Uh, it just doesn't help because we got, we got work to do. We got, we got today's parenting. Let's not waste time thinking about yesterday's parenting. I like the idea of it just being inefficient. <laughs> I want to quote my fav- favorite quote in your book, maybe my favorite quote in general. Parenting is among the class of human endeavors positively doomed to generate the experience of failure. I, mean, I just love that so much. Now, the reason I bring it up here, aside from it's my favorite quote, is you know we live in a world right now where we're being told that failure is causing our kids to suffer. But we also know that parenting is, you know, just riddled with failures along the way. It's it really kind of challenging to be a parent right now. Right. We are so quick to spot perfectionism in our kids, particularly around academics. The kid who has to recopy her history notes, you know, twice um, and, and spending time that's just not productive. What we miss is the perfectionism in our parenting as if it were possible to parent perfectly. It's like every other meaningful endeavor in life. The best way to do it is with imperfect grace, right? Because, you know, I remember my dear mother, who I think was a genius, and I was slamming my fist, maybe, I never, I wasn't a fist slammer, but saying to her at age 17, I will never do that to my children. And she said, Mark, you're probably right. You probably won't. You won't make my mistakes. You'll make your mistakes, right? And, you know, oh, we'll see about that. Well, of course, we did see about that. <laughs> uh, and it is just, it's so true. Parenting is flawed because you don't, you evaluate everything in retrospect. So much of it is judgment call. Do we apply more pressure or less pressure? Do we become instructive or do we let him or her add up the pieces and you know, infer the lesson on their own. Well, you always know after the fact what was the right thing to do. But in real time, you're making educated guesses. So it's just, it's the nature of any human endeavor and certainly of parenting. That phrase came from the fact that when my son was an infant, I remember thinking, I am going to get this right. You know, I was a psychology grad student, so I was immediately more enlightened than my parents. (laughs) I was just going to do it the way it should be done. And, you know, I was I was quite young when I had my kids. I was in my early 20s. And I look back and, and blush because it's so naive, right? But it is the intention of most parents. I'm going to do this right. I'm so aware, most of us are, of where our parents missed the target. And we're not going to do that. That's easy. That, By the way, that exercise is very easy. <laughs> You master it by about age 14. <laughs> so let's, you mentioned, you mentioned your kids. Let, can you share the story about your daughter borrowing the car? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, I will. I hope she'll forgive me. <laughs> but, you know, I, being the enlightened post the watershed of the 60s and 70s, I was, I was sort of in that spirit. My kids were always going to be known that they were treated equally and fairly and listened to. I was a real... You know, I worked hard at being a listener. 
And so my daughter is um, a 12th grader and they've got a day off. Uh, maybe it's Martin Luther King Day. I don't know. It's a day when she doesn't have to go into school and yet I'm still working. And she says, Dad, can I have the car? Can I borrow the car? I said, sure, not a problem. I have to be at the office at noon. So you can just drive me by and I'll get mom to pick me up when I'm done. You can have the car all day. She goes off to make plans with her friends and she comes back and says, um, look, could I drop you off at the office at, 12, at, at 11 a.m.? I think about it for a minute. I look at my schedule. I say, that won't work. I've got stuff to do. Drop me off at noon. She says, no, but really, I need to drop you off at 11 because, I'm sorry, if you want the car, drop me off. It ratchets up. And the next thing I know, she's huffing and puffing. And she's saying, honest to God, you and mom act like you own the cars. <laughs> and I, I remember my words. Talk about guilt. I have residual guilt about this. I looked at her and I said, either you're putting me on or you're a lunatic. <laughs> she stomped out of the room and she dropped me off at noon, right? But I am, you know, if, 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 if I bring any vice that has become a virtue, it's obsession. And so I obsess about, I obsess about things with clients, with my kid. I just want to learn what makes people tick. I couldn't get that out of my mind. How could this bright girl, bright, thoughtful, kind, uh, just just uh, lovable in every way, make such an insanely psychotic remark? <laughs> and, uh, and it came to me. It took a week. But what came to me was in my, <laughs> I want to say, uh, enlightened or misguided, use either term, parenting, I had, in fact, treated the cars as if they were community property. I had been that sort of thoughtful to a fault parent, even in saying, sure, drop me off and I'll, I'll take the inconvenience of having to arrange a ride home. And all she was doing was taking my lunacy and putting it into words, <laughs> right? So you were both lunatics. <laughs> no, no, no. There was only one lunatic in that, in that interaction and, and it was me. I don't know if everyone goes through this experience, but I've had it many times with different kids, which is a period of time where I am walking on eggshells all the time. Like I say hello and they go, why do you say that? I breathe and they go, you're breathing too loudly, right? And um, and some of that is like maybe more pronounced in um, high school, but I got it in the early 20s from some of my kids. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh that response means not common. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> different paradigm, different ground rules. And it's so interesting. Um, I have grandkids going through the phase again, and it's like, oh, yeah, teenagers. And I think the, the mentality of that for the parent of a teenager, it's let me draw a strange analogy. I read an article by a pediatrician who had just had, he had his first child, and his first child was 18 months or two and had begun to have temper tantrums. And so being a young pediatrician, he decided, I'm going to be the person that solves temper tantrums, right? <laughs> well, he, he, so what he did is he said, well, the first thing you do as a scientist is you record them, not audio recording, but he kept a, a notebook. When do they begin? When do they end? What's the intensity on a scale of one to 10? So he charted his child's temper tantrums. 
And what he discovered pretty early on was they were very standard. They always ended within a certain predictable number of minutes. And once he realized that, he in fact mastered them. He just timed them. That's all he did. Temper tantrum started. He was like, okay, we got about 18 to 19 minutes to go. <laughs> and it made it entirely bearable, right? So that's what I advise parents of teenagers. When your son or daughter goes through that, I love it. Oh, you're breathing too loud. Know that it's a phase. No, it's not going to be 18 or 19 minutes. It may be 18 or 19 months. But knowing that it's a phase really helps you to distance from it and to see, you know what? This has nothing to do with me and everything to do with them. And that's probably, when I think of the, the therapeutics of working with that parent, it's helping them to not feel that somehow it's personal, that if only they were a better parent, if only they breathed more gracefully, <laughs> their, their child would not be <laughs> issuing that complaint, which is absurd. Now, with a 20-year-old, I think it's something different. With 20-year-olds... It is personal. At 20, <laughs> it is personal. <laughs> I impose a different template, which is it's rude. It's simply rude. You do not have the same hormonal, biological, physiological changes that render you more irritable against your will and will for the next 12 months. We don't have that going on. You're just being rude. And I, I ask parents to approach it in much more of a, a bilateral, like of equals. Like if you are going to spend time in this house, if you're going to come down in the morning for, kitchen, for breakfast in the kitchen, I expect civility. I expect good morning. I don't expect huffing and puffing. If that's too much to ask for you, then let's put our heads together and find another place for you to live, which, by the way, in a place like Cleveland is not rocket science. If you live in Los Angeles, it can be a challenge. But if you live in Cleveland, finding a modest apartment for your 20-something is doable. But I do think that civility should be a non-negotiable with a 20-something. Now, easy for me to say, because I'm not in the throes of it with a 22-year-old. But that is, that's what I try to persuade parents of. And when the parent gets convinced that it's a non-negotiable, that's when the kid usually picks up on it. So what if you've got a young adult that's not financially responsible? Well, I, I, you know, most aren't because money management is a learned, it's an acquired skill. And so what, what you, you want them to stumble, you don't want them to stumble from 50 feet, right? So I'll, I'll give you an example that's fairly garden variety. And I had one family in particular, kids go off to college. I remember when my kids went off to college, the, the local banks had tables set up where you, at age 18, applied and got your first credit card. Um, I'm sure they do it a little differently now, but the same thing. They want to get these kids on the credit wheel. And a lot of those kids just don't know how to manage credit. And so within a matter of months, they've hit their max. Maybe they're out $250 or $500. And parents are often inclined to bail them out. So I had such a family years ago. The daughter's well in her 30s now, but they bailed her out at $500. They bailed her out at $1,000. They bailed her out at $5,000. Now, post-college, they bailed her out at $12,000. And eventually, they bailed her out at $18,000. Now, 
That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to let them fall and fail very early in that sequence and to suffer the disappointment of not managing. You know, if you've got a kid who has, uh, like there, there's a viable income stream. Maybe it's working over the, the holidays, home from college. Maybe it's working over summer. And they are, I um, have a great example of a parent whose daughter is um, very averse to any kind of labor <laughs> and works here and there doing DoorDash, that sort of thing, gathers a little bit of money and decided with friends to go to a music festival in another city. And so she and her friends went. And as the parents pointed out, it, and it's a big city, I won't name the city, but they said she has no idea what a hotel room in that city costs, none whatsoever. And it took the second night before they got the text or the phone call that said, would you mind lending me $400? <laughs> okay. And they just, you know, praise the Lord. They had the good sense to say, actually, what they did that was even more, they simply didn't respond. To the text, oh, I love that response. Which I was. <laughs> so the, the point is to, to allow your kid to have that, that disappointment, that falling on their face at a time when really no one gets hurt. Right. So this kid borrowed from her friends who borrowed from their parents. Now she's out to her friends and now she gets home and she's got to find ways of earning some money to pay back her friends. I think that's a useful experience. Right. So now it's different if your kid is stranded on a road 300 miles from home and the only way home is to hitchhike. I might step in there. But I think allowing them to have those failure experiences, that's how you learn. All right, so we're going to wrap this up uh, the way we wrap up all, all of our podcasts. What is the biggest myth about parenting young adults? Well, probably it's something we touched on earlier. It's that you, the parent, are responsible for their success or failure. But that admission that they gained to Harvard, you get the credit for that. That's, that's a myth. That the fact that they failed out after their second semester, that somehow you're responsible for that. That's a myth. I, I think that's probably the thing that I work hardest with as an embedded belief with parents. And I've consulted now with hundreds of parents who have encountered my book and then we've gotten together. And it's this, they just at an, at an unreflective autopilot level see themselves as responsible for whatever their kid is going through. And I, I think it's based on a kind of myth, a sort of a deeply swallowed myth. Dr. Mark McConville, first of all, thank you for doing part two with us. It was as great as part one. And I also think that that ending was so perfect because we we do want to own their successes, and but we don't really want to own their failures. So they have to both go together. So that was a great way to end. Thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called 
Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.